0: I should stop thinking about how difficult this is going to be to edit and just vibe so hello and welcome to on writing and fan fiction i'm zoe i'm jake and today we're going to talk about poetry talking um, about fucking
1: poetry Been super really excited. excited for this episode um
0: but before we get into it we got some we get, questions Well, before even that, before we get into it, I'd like to apologize for the audio quality of episode three. It was abysmal, I'm aware.
1: The staple of this podcast is not, like, writerly wisdom. The staple of this podcast is audio problems. Yeah. And frankly, I'd have it no other way.
0: So here's the... My brief excuse slash explanation is I was recording with the window open, and so my background my mic which is already super sensitive picked up way more background rookie
1: mistake zoe
0: yes the other issue is that i record wearing semi noise blocking headphones and so while i could not hear any of the background noise that my mic was picking up jake could and he didn't tell me when everything was happening so this is also partially his fault it's
1: it's also partially super my fault
0: shame for shame (laughs) But anyway, as usual, we'll also begin with reminding you guys to check out uh, the Instagram. The poetry we are going to talk about today is all listed on there. Yep. Uh, and you can find the most of the poems we talk about. Or you can find them on poetryfoundation.org if you'd like to read along or mm-hmm. read ahead.
1: Um, um, I'll, I'll link them in the I'll link them in the show notes too.
0: Yeah, yeah. They'll also be linked in the show notes. So the Instagram is at owff_podcast, and you can send us fan mail. Or hate mail about this episode to owffpod at gmail.com.
1: I didn't get, so I didn't catch that. What's that email again?
0: owffpod at gmail.com. That's the one. Alfpod.
1: Alf- the Alfpod. Uh, and so like
0: we'll it. also begin this episode by answering some of your fan mail. Yeah, so we've we got f- our first one from China. Thank you so much for your support, China, and your thoughts on characterization.
1: Yeah. She, uh, she starts with a lovely note about how she's been enjoying our podcast. Thank you. It's awesome. Her question is, she struggles a lot with writing characters out of character. We're talking about like fan fiction and stuff right now. Mm-hmm. So even, as I, even if I feel like I have a fairly decent understanding of a character, I still low-key stress if I am writing them out of character or not. I think my problem is trying to get into the mind of a character that's so different than I am in personality and having to figure out if they really do this or if they're undergoing a situation that I've never been through. Uh, I stress about getting their experience right and their reaction to said experience. Her question is, what are your thoughts on characters written out of character, quote unquote, writing characters out of character, uh, or if it's possible for anyone to write their favorites truly in character?
0: Yeah, so um, thank you, China, for basically predicting the topic of episode six. Yeah, we're super uh, to talk about that. Which I'm really excited to talk about. Characterization is one of my favorite things think about when I'm writing uh, fan fiction. So we will get to all of your questions and more uh, on episode six.
1: Stick around for that. All right. Uh, so our second question is from BD. He asks uh, about where we would put vocabulary on that pyramid, that fancy pyramid you made a couple weeks ago.
0: So that's an excellent question. I think I'd put it on the bottom with spelling and punctuation when I, when I thought about it.
1: I think pun- spelling and punctuation probably have to be done first before you start thinking about it vocabulary i think like spelling yeah. and punctuation is like that's sort of the bedrock for your whole thing you know he makes a point about we talked about specificity and word choice and not wanting to force your ready to reach for a thesaurus every time you bring a word up
0: okay so maybe it's sort of wrapped into the show don't tell
1: yeah a little bit but the the other thing he alludes to is also like we also say it's important to pick a specific word over a general word when possible this is the thing with writing. It's like exceptions abound for pretty much everything we talk about. And vocabulary is really, really important, but I, what's important about it is is striking a balance. You don't want to overload your writing with jargon or really sort of you know highbrow, quote-unquote, words yeah. or vocabulary. Yeah,
0: the other thing about vocabulary is that it's really, the vocabulary you use is, is really wrapped up in your unique tone as mm-hmm. a writer. So, I don't know, vocabulary isn't something that, like... I would go out of my way to expand, I guess. I just, it's, just something, it's just something that happens naturally over the course of reading and writing a lot.
1: Right. I, I do think it's important to expand your vocabulary. But like you say, yeah, like that expanding your vocabulary happens just from reading and writing. I think actually in Stephen King's On Writing, he even says as much where it's like, if you can describe something adequately with a simple word, use that word.
0: Yeah, um, I would definitely agree with that.
1: Yeah, for sure. But, and this is where I'm having an aside, vocabulary really shines when you are using figurative language, when you're using metaphor and stuff like that. It's sort of like the, the broader your knowledge just about shit in general. The more... Compelling and accurate illusions you're going to be able to make with with such figurative language. So that's the point where having a really big vocabulary like, can really, really drive an image home, or can really put your writing on like another tier. Like we said, it's like a balance. You don't want to you don't want to write as if your reader is stupid. You always have. You should always treat your writing as if your readers are at least as smart as you are.
0: Uh, in the interest of you know establishing your own unique voice and tone, you should use whatever vocabulary you feel comfortable using Mm -hmm. as long as it's you know mostly grammatically correct and that will help you communicate your ideas the best i think rather than trying to use a vocabulary that is less familiar
1: to you yeah totally this is a problem especially with like with, with emergent writers and writers that are just starting out is they there's sort of this conception that your vocabulary has to be really flowery and highbrow
0: yeah, so your, your vocabulary doesn't have to be anything, really. Your vocabulary just has to communicate what you want to communicate.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I would also like to thank BD for their extremely conditional approval, <laughs> signing their email, fan for now. Yeah, fan for now. It's,
1: <laughs> it's probably the audio issues, honestly. You think so? Yeah, probably. We're going to get on I that.
0: Tell like... us, BD. Is it the audio issues? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Because those probably aren't going to be solved anytime soon.
1: <laughs> no, don't say that. We'll probably get around to it. Right? Sure. I, I don't really want to go out shopping that much because there's a fucking plague going on, but.
0: Well, also money. Okay. Also money. All right. And our last email is from Carrie, Where who rightfully is- has called us out for making the generalization that they use single quotation marks in Europe. Which yes. Is. Not true, particularly because Europe is not a, a monolith, as we were r- r- reminded. Mm-hmm. And we did mean, uh, of course, English-speaking Europe and, and UK English. We I looked this up on Wikipedia, and according, according to Wikipedia on punctuation marks, in the UK, the norm is to use single quotation marks on the outside of dialogue. According to Wikipedia, however, Carrie also points out that she has been to the UK and not found this to be true. So... Maybe there are differences within the UK as well. If you are listening from the UK, please feel free to weigh in. Clearly, we don't know anything.
1: We know nothing. I honestly, I, I derived that entire understanding, quote unquote, from reading The Witcher books, which are by Andrzej Sapkowski, who's a Polish author. I, I just assumed. I did not say they use it in Europe. I didn't say that they used it throughout all of Europe. So t- technically, sure.
0: Well, once again, you know.
1: Jake has thwarted being proven entirely okay, wrong. Okay. Well,
0: also, according to Brexit, <laughs> the UK isn't a part of Europe. Well,
1: fuck them then.
0: Jake alienates even more <laughs> listeners. Our listeners did not tune in to get roasted.
1: <laughs> well, they, they tuned to the wrong podcast. No, I was kidding.
0: Let us know if you are tuning
1: in to get roasted. <laughs> <laughs> then we can we can happily oblige.
0: Okay. Let's get on to the real content. Of this podcast, the, which the meat is... of
1: this episode.
0: The meat of this episode, yes, which is poetry. Um, instead of talking about the poems directly and just turning this into like a literature class where we analyze poetry, I thought we would open with a discussion of some techniques that I think about in the context of poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, starting with similes and metaphors. So, Jake, have you ever heard the joke? What's a metaphor?
1: I <laughs> no. Uh, what is a metaphor?
0: To to keep cows in.
1: Podcast is over. I'm kidding. <laughs> this sucks. Fuck this.
0: Isn't that the best dad joke ever? This is horrible. What's a metaphor? I'm not doing this podcast
1: with you anymore. <laughs> Canceling it.
0: That's like one of my favorite jokes.
1: Yeah, I okay. bet it is.
0: What do you like better, similes or metaphors? I
1: love me a good metaphor. Metaphors, I think, and this is a flaw of my thinking. I shouldn't think like this. So this is wrong. Don't do as I say, not as I do. But. I find myself thinking of metaphors as like similes, cooler, older brother.
0: You are incorrect, but go
1: I, on. I I I know I am, but there's a reason for that. Metaphors are great for figurative language and they're especially prevalent in poetry. In poetry, I actually feel like you should use as few similes as possible. At least when you're starting out. I think a a great way to learn how to write poetry, like a great primer, is like write a poem without using a simile at all. Because that will sort of force you to be imaginative with your language and think about what words can I say to sort of evoke a very specific image. But what are your thoughts? How do you weigh in on the metaphors versus similes debate?
0: I knew this would be a good discussion because I prefer similes to metaphors. I don't know. I think metaphors can be overused really easily, and you start to sound really pretentious. Um, That much is true. I just think similes are more down-to-earth, you know? Right. And more direct. It's a more direct way of speaking. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be more meaningful, I think, to bring up our first poem in which I found a simile. So this is A Litany for Survival by Audre Lorde.
1: Fantastic, by the way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Towards the end of the first verse, uh, she writes, Looking inward and outward at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures like bread in our children's mouths. So you can tell by the presence of the word like that Mm -hmm. this is a simile, and I just think that would be... Less powerful if it were. A yeah. Four.
1: So, 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 the, so, as a disclaimer, I don't actually think either are necessarily better. Rather, you need to know when to use either one. Similes are great, like sonically, like for rhythm, and like for how they sound. And this is a, this is a great example of that. Seeking a now that can breed futures, like bread in our children's mouths, like that's fantastic.
0: And um, I think also similes can be really good for when you're looking to to establish repetition because you can use that like for repeating similes
1: yes and you know what i think your point on similes being a more direct way of speaking i think that's that that really hits the nail on the head of like why they're they can be so effective Bad with burning city is, an, is a beautiful poem and it, it, it's a poem about the evacuation of saigon it's a poem about the american occupation of vietnam
0: yeah and that line that first simile is repeated two-thirds through the poem yeah milk flower petals on a black dog like mm-hmm. pieces of a girl's dress so this is almost the same line slightly different but it, it still has that same sentence structure kind mm-hmm. of held together by that like aside from the repetition of the two things that are being compared
1: yeah and again like you said like with the directness of a simile a simile doesn't it doesn't pretend Mm-hmm. to be a metaphor if that makes sense you know what i mean like because this is a poem with such like visceral subject matter the sound mm-hmm. of it reflects that mm-hmm. it's it's sort of it's unadorned it's, yeah. but, but well at the same time the word choice is, is really beautiful so that's mm-hmm. sort of the balance that ocean belongs straight because he writes this and another thing about this poem that i'm i'm really glad that you chose this as part of your reading list was this is an excellent example of how poetry doesn't have to have a form like a shakespearean sonnet has two stanzas and
0: no. uh no you're wrong four, eight. three what's called quatrains
1: quatrains which are four which are four line stanzas
0: yeah and It's uh, and the last two lines are a couplet
1: yes exactly a shakespearean sonnet has a fixed form
0: fixed is- not only in in rhyme scheme but also in rhythm
1: yes the Shakespearean sonnets rhyme scheme is, I believe, A-B-B-A? A,
0: B, B, A? Incorrect. Is it
1: A, B, A, B, C, D, C,
0: D? E, F, E, F, G, G.
1: Yes, that's it. So every other line...
0: The, so each quatrain, each group of four lines has its own rhyme scheme, mm-hmm. and then it's ended by the couplet. The quatrains also, if you want to get really technical about it, also can be used to draw the arc of the story. So you use the first quatrain to set, set the scene so to speak mm-hmm. and then eventually elaborate on that scene eventually there's a turn what's called a turn in the poem yeah and then a resolution with the rhyming couplet at the end mm-hmm. don't so, at me about shakespeare jake <laughs> so so
1: yeah shakespeare is, is that's your wheelhouse for sure but like to illustrate what we're talking about like another thing on our reading list was, was sonnet 106 went in the chronicle of waste of time uh, so the first quadrant here is when in the chronicle of wasted time I see descriptions of the fairest whites in beauty making beautiful old rhyme in praise of ladies dead and lovely knights. So you have yeah. time, whites, rhyme, knights. The first quadrant, yeah. and then the second quadrant is rhymed best brow expressed now. So yeah. each, so every other line rhymes, but each quatrain has the same rhyme scheme but different rhymes, and then the last yeah. two lines are for we which now behold these present days have eyes to wonder but lack tongues to praise.
0: Yeah, so that's a primer on Shakespearean sonnets. I think before we quite move on from about of the Burning City though, I think I want to, you know, we're comparing free verse, something that's definitely free verse, Mm -hmm. to something that's extremely rigid. Yes. And but I think both of these forms are can be used in different ways to express emphasis. Like even in a free verse poem like Obad, the line breaks aren't random. Quite the contrary, they're extremely intentional even if they aren't regular. Yeah. So generally in a line, and this is actually true in prose as well, in a sentence the most emphasis, the thing you want to emphasize the most is that you should either put at the beginning or at the end. So, and this is for when you're constructing sentences in creative writing of prose as well. ending with the, the thing you want to emphasize will communicate that emphasis, you know, kind of implicitly mm-hmm. so in in Obad, the lines are broken seemingly randomly, extremely irregularly, but
1: very intentionally,
0: but very intentionally. yeah yeah,
1: yeah that's no I'm that's it's a, a that's a great point. And you know as as we were saying before we got I sidetracked us about Shakespeare was. <laughs> this is a great poem for to uh, exemplify to people that poetry has really no rules it doesn't there's no one way that a poem has to look you you can play with form however you, you know form in poetry is very val- uh, malleable mm-hmm. and like you said like there's the, the the line breaks are all very purposeful they're very intentional and something that can't be overlooked is how a poem actually looks too like there's there's a visual element to poetry that like is a is another refrain of the poem's meaning like for in obad for example in obad with burning city this is it's a poem about the vietnam invasion and the ev- evacuation of saigon like because the lines and the words themselves are scattered what that's reflecting is sort of like the scattered remnants of a country that that was made a victim of american imperialism <laughs> Jake gets political. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, tell me I'm wrong, right? But like, I, I'm not. I'm not saying you're wrong. No, no, no. I, not you, of course. You know, the, the America invaded Vietnam because they they were they feared the spread of communism.
0: Basically, I think to cut to the chase here, the scatter, the randomness, the seeming randomness of the line breaks, the seeming randomness of the indentations in this poem mm-hmm. reflect the chaos that the, was the chaos of, of war. Exactly, the very end of the, the end of the war. You know, this hasty operation, basically us trying to cover our asses. Yeah, the verse, um, his black eyes her black hair, a single candle. You know, there are lines that are longer than all of those put together, but those three things are on separate lines to put emphasis on them, to slow the pace,
1: mm-hmm.
0: to kind of zoom in on a moment.
1: Yeah. This poem is about a man making a sexual advances on a woman backgrounded by the evacuation of Saigon, mm-hmm. uh, the capital of, of South Vietnam. So mm-hmm. that bit that you're talking about, that stanza, if you will, even though the lines are all very... Know, scattered, and broken is his hand running the hem of her white dress. His black mm-hmm. eyes, her black hair, a single candle. Their shadows, two wicks. Every one of those lines is on a different line. So, mm-hmm. like that, really slows the pace down and puts a, 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 a great deal of focus and emphasis on that particular moment in time. So, which which goes to show the versatility of, of line breaks and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. So now, contrasting that with with the Shakespeare sonnet. Mm-hmm so a little bit of background the rhythm of sonnets is called iambic pentameter yep iambic pentameter says two things one it defines the uh, pattern of emphasis in the line and it also defines the length of the line in terms of syllables yes so penta five that means there are five quote feet Mm -hmm. and a foot is two syllables and the second syllable in iambic pentameter of each foot is what's emphasized
1: but so how that falls then is when in the chronicle of wasted time so to explain what an i am is an i am i a m b it's a measurement of, of of emphasis like you said for example of another very common form of rhythm is trochaic which, which are mm-hmm. which is formed of trochies trochies are the opposite of an i am in which you know in an i am you have the da da the troche is a da da so for example mm-hmm. The words brother and sister are trochaic words. It's brother, sister. The emphasis is on like the first syllable there. Whereas it, if it was iambic, it would be brother or sister. It's sounds stupid. Right. Mm-hmm. So that that's what like the syllable. I don't even really know what the term for that is. Like syllabic measurement. I don't fucking know. I anyway. Know. If
0: you know, if you know, tell us. So, yeah. So because the natural rhythm of a sonnet is iambic pentameter, you can actually use that structure and go against it in ways that put emphasis on certain words or lines.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're talking about like really formulaic forms of poetry with like strict meters and stuff like that because I think this is, this is a really good introduction for people that want to write poetry. There's, there's sort of a conception that poetry has to rhyme. Poetry has to be really formulaic. So, well, it doesn't have to be. A lot of the poems that you're going to read starting out are going to be. So, you know, you have stuff like uh, Shakespeare's sonnets, there's, there's other things like this like the raven which is in an even more complex meter called trochaic octameter so that means
0: oh man i didn't even know the in, raven had a meter <laughs>
1: insane right yeah there's there's all kinds of different meters and stuff like that so for anyone that doesn't know meter is the rhythm of a line in poetry like with iambic pentameter you know you have penta that's five metrical feet and a per line with the raven you have octameter that's eight Metrical feet per line. And because it's trochaic, the emphasis falls on the first syllable and then every other syllable after that. So you have the opening line here is once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. So there's a very clear rhythm and musicality to the Raven that I absolutely love. And part of that is because the language is its very formal. It's
0: formal almost to the point of stiffness.
1: It's almost stiff. It's almost stiff, but it, its it's beautiful.
0: I think the formality is especially kind of odd juxtaposed with the plot of the poem, which is basically a guy alone in his room yelling at a
1: bird he's screaming at a bird i mean i if a bird flew into my house i'd be i'd be a little concerned as well but he's like yelling at a bird as he's waxing poetic about his dead girlfriend or something so all this to say there's a lot of complexity to poetry and understanding it is sort of the key to you know being able to write really uh fantastic rhythmic musical poems like the raven and shakespearean sonnets yeah and um, i would
0: argue that the the key to poetry is is probably not following the rules but breaking them and the key to reading poetry is looking for places where the writer is breaking their the rules either the rules of the form or their own rules Mm -hmm. because that will tell you where a lot of the meaning is
1: yeah for sure we have a good contrast here because we have really free-form stuff like obad with burning city and the litany for a litany for survival contrasted with sonnet 106 and the raven And another favorite poem of mine called Trailer Park Etude by Conor O'Callaghan. And I think every person that's starting out writing poetry should read this because it's really, really simple meter, almost like children's book rhyme scheme, but it's gorgeous. It's a a beautiful poem. This is iambic quatrameter. So the first stanza is...
0: Wow, you know all these?
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. Well, it's just a matter of, of, like, okay, so how many beats are there per line? and Like, where do the, where does the stress fall? So you're, you can figure out what the meter is. So the, the first stanza here is, The night's midweek are secrets kept, no soul on sight, no signal bars, and zelch for company except a zillion bright disarming stars. I'll flit through ambers, quicker or higher, I'll break each hamlet's stop or yield. I'll fix some noodles, start a fire, and climb up to the topmost field.
0: I want to say uh, what i love about this poem and what stood out to me is is the specificity of the word choices here i think Mm -hmm. no signal bars was is one of my favorites i love how that tells you so many things yeah about the setting it implies the implication of of technology but also the fact that it's useless
1: because you're so isolated Uh, yeah you're so far out there that there's just nothing um, yeah. And this poem does something else that is that is really great. So this poem is broke and broken up into sections. First it's called The Stars. The second is called The Rain. The third is called The Wind. And the fourth is called The Grass. And in the second quatrain of The Rain, you have... It's like the god of liquid rubber stirred at dawn to slip downstairs. Like, the word rubber there is enjammed. And what enjambment is... Is where you have a line that leads into another whether it's just through punctuation it's not end stopped with a period or you have a you have a single word that ends one line and begins the next in this case it's the word rubber which ends up rhyming with drub in the third line it goes it's like the god of liquid rubber stirred at dawn to slip downstairs and sip a cigarette to drub his fingertips on solid layers this poem sounds sonically so simple, but mechanically there's so much complexity going on. It's it's one of my favorites. I absolutely adore it. And this is why I wanted to talk about poetic meter and iambs and trochies and rhyme scheme and all this stuff. Because I actually do think this is a great way to start writing poetry. You know, if, you're, if your heart is sort of set on, on, a, on a rhyme scheme or anything. You know, no, fuck, that's bullshit. I, I you can <laughs> a great way to write poetry is to just write it. It's great to study this stuff to sort of get an understanding of like how important rhythm is, but you know, like the other poems we talked about with Obad and the Litany for its Survival, it can be completely free form, no rhyme at all. All those poems are are atmosphere and metaphor and imagery. Poetry is sorcery. it's it's incantatory this is going to sound super pretentious and cheesy but i I, I, it's fucking swear to god it's true a good poem will build a world on a page yeah it it draws you into i think a litany survival does that wonderfully it's yes for those of us who live at the shoreline standing upon the constant edges of decision crucial and alone immediately in the first three lines there's like it, it situates you on a precipice of something there's, mm-hmm. there's there's a great deal of indecision Is what you're yeah talking she's about.
0: already established a conflict you know in, already
1: established a conflict and G-9's. you're at you're at a really that's not a,
0: even a complete sentence no but she's established the conflict already
1: yeah no it's amazing there's this immediate really dynamic scene of standing mm-hmm. at this sort of ragged edgy shoreline In all she says, she doesn't define what the shoreline looks like, but the second line- Or it's a literal or
0: metaphorical shoreline.
1: Or that it's literal or metaphorical, exactly.
0: It establishes that imagery of a boundary.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the second line being standing upon the constant edges of decision. You know, the word edge there sort of implies like there's like a sharpness to this edge, this precipice that she's standing on. One other poem that we haven't gotten to yet that I think is absolutely fantastic for this- And I hadn't read this poem in a long time before you put it on your reading list, and I I forgot how much I I loved it. But this is The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. And this one is actually great because, like you said, something great about poetry is about finding where a poem breaks the rules. This has a ton of rhyme with, like, no rhyme scheme. Yeah, It's not random, because nothing in poetry is random. It's all very purposeful and intentional but it it reads that way almost
0: yeah i think doing things randomly is a mistake that is often made when you start out writing poetry i remember i've never been really a poet or interested in so interested in writing a lot of poetry but i've been in a lot of workshops with poets and one question that i've heard professors ask students is what do you mean by this poem what does mm-hmm. this poem mean and the student doesn't No, or says something vague like well it means you know whatever you know you take from it but the and the professor says no you need when you're writing a poem you should know what you mean and when you're writing poetry you often don't put all of the meaning that's in your head onto the page Mm -hmm. but you need to know what you mean clearly in your head yeah and that that will make the poem that much better if you are doing things with intention with a motivation
1: yeah so, like yeah. that that intentionality will inform the poem and it, it, yeah. it, it gives it a through line
0: and it will allow people to take more from it because yeah exactly if the picture is clear in your head you will be able to make the, uh, the picture clear in their head and it might not be the same picture
1: mm-hmm. you brought up a really good point about um knowing and not knowing what a poem means um, and i want to talk about that from the reader's perspective for a second the reason that there's sort of that poetry sort of has like a bit more of a barrier to entry than just fiction or nonfiction does, is well, um, well why
0: would why would why do you say that? I mean, the very first things I ever wrote creatively were poetry.
1: Well, that's the thing. It, there's a conception that poetry has to be very highbrow, very deep and soulful, and well, it should. Poems don't have to be. Poems don't have to be anything. If there's someone listening to this that maybe prior to you know clicking this episode has had no interest at all in reading or writing poetry. People sort of sort of belabor the point that you need to you need to understand what a poem is saying and you don't really, not at least not immediately. The the beauty of poetry is just that like because of the musicality that we've been talking about because of the rhythm and the meter or just because of the world that it paints you. A poem can draw you in and it can just be that. A poem can be a song or it can be a world that you can stay in for a little while it doesn't have to have any deeper meaning
0: but if you connect to a poem you inherently see a deeper meaning yeah. in yeah
1: no for sure but but what i mean is like that connection doesn't have to be based on being able to pick out like the obtuse dissection of the human condition that, that connection all it has to be is i liked it I like the way this poem sounded, or I like the way that it made me feel as I was reading it. I like the soulfulness and the atmosphericness of the picture that it was painting. Poetry isn't meaningless, but it doesn't have to have a meaning for you immediately, for you to enjoy it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it took me, especially a long, complicated poem, like The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, I think Mm -hmm. that took me several reads to kind of divine a meaning from it for mm-hmm. myself I love this poem a lot I love the imagery I think the imagery of this poem is really good
1: another thing that's th- that's great about this poem is this will help us segue into how poetry r- will help you write prose because mm-hmm. there's one stanza here that I want to talk about and I'm going to read it here so it says and indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street rubbing its back upon the window panes there will be time There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet there will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea so first of all like you said incredibly imagistic of this of yellow smoke rubbing its back upon the window panes like there's mm-hmm. this sickly yellow bulbous cloud that's sort of slowly drifting down this solitary street
0: mm-hmm. incredibly
1: imagistic and th- that's what i mean when i say poetry is incantatory and sorcerous, and it sort of like conjures all these crazy images what this stanza is saying is like it's it's talking about social anxieties there's this constant refrain of there will be time there will be time as if the speaker of the poem is like sort of trying to convince themselves that there's going to be time for the things they want to do there will be time to to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet
0: yeah i love the repetition of this poem within the lines yeah there's a lot of that this stanza and in others a repetition of the same word within a line but those words mean different things so a couple of verses later there's the line i know the voice is dying with a dying fall so the word dying used twice but with a different meaning each time
1: yeah i know again this is one of my favorites we have we curated some pretty fucking solid reading lists for this episode
0: I, back to the stanza that you picked out i think this poem to me is about death and growing older and, and dying and I think that's where the repetition of the phrase "there will be time" mm-hmm. comes in, because it's the expectation of a future, but also that kind of
1: desperate, a desperate hope that there will be one.
0: Desperate hope that there will be one, and that there will be enough of one.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, this poem is very like somber, but it's yeah. It's... It, the,
0: the final image, the final image of this poem is of
1: drowning. Yeah this poem is very much about fretting that there's not enough time it's sort of like constantly worrying after like the, the fear of death and of time running out this poem is about a lot of things um, yeah
0: and it can be about different things to different people for people
1: exactly yeah the although po- i'm
0: sure there are countless essays on it <laughs>
1: oh i'm sure there's a, there's tons of academia about this but that's another thing is like poems rarely ever mean just one thing they mean they're they're very multifaceted things and the reason I say this will help us segue into talking about how poetry will help you write your prose and this is where I really I really advocate for people to write and read and enjoy and and surround themselves in poetry because T. S. Eliot is saying all these things without really saying them. He's using uh, he's using imagery and using that show don't tell maxim that we talked about. Yeah, and it's a long
0: poem, and it's a long poem, but every word is essential. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about in general poetry. I think is can be really helpful for developing a sense. Of the potential economy of language in mm-hmm. your writing, so using the fewest words to convey uh, the biggest concepts. I think the poem that best expresses to me this concept of the economy of language is probably the Trailer Park Etudes.
1: Mm. Yeah, look, there was there was that think, line, the second line, like "No soul on sight no signal bars." Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the second stanza too. I break. Each hamlet stop or yield, referring to street signs, mm-hmm. specific street signs with words that you can picture and i'll fix some noodles start a fire you know this is using a specific word instead of a general word noodles instead of food mm-hmm. or dinner yeah um, yeah
1: no it uses noodles to sort of infer like a kind of cheapness to the food that he's eating you know what i mean simplicity simplicity uh, yeah. yeah yeah you know what this is a way better poem for segway you're absolutely right like this is a great example of that you know with that second line that you talked about earlier with no soul on sight no signal bars it's like with those few words right there he's just communicating that there's this he's communicating the idea of isolation of Mm -hmm. being really far away from civilization uh, or other people to talk to there's a really evident disconnect between the speaker of this poem and anyone else in the world there's no one for him to talk to or anything like that and this Mm -hmm. is why the economy of language is a great way to put it not economic in the sense that you need to be laconic and say as little as you can all the time
0: but what you say should have a purpose and communicate something new. Yeah. Or enhance the meaning of what you've already said.
1: Yeah, enhance the meaning is a good way to put it. You can say a lot with a little and those little maxims that you put in your writing are they're, they're going to stick with people. Hmm. So I guess how this relates to, to writing prose is this is the sort of thing that we talk about when we talk about figurative language. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about no signal bars being a a correlative for isolation we talk about Mm -hmm. the yellow smoke that slides along the street rubbing its back upon the window panes conveying this idea of like the sort of sickly miasma that's like sort of alive you know what i mean it's unsettling Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like off-putting and that's like the magic of language that poetry taps into so learning to tap into that yourself is is that's what enhances your prose
0: the biggest lesson that i like to take from poetry when i'm writing prose is that rhythm matters in prose too
1: yes absolutely i
0: think i think about rhythm a lot when i'm writing dialogue and the beats that people create when they speak
1: yeah like their cadence and the lilts of their voices
0: yeah and how to communicate that naturally how to lean into that and to break it when the situation demands it
1: yeah for sure rhythm is a really important one for me like i use because i'm in i'm in school for writing and we talked a lot about alliterative verse so yeah we talked about poems like circle wayne and the green knight which we didn't get to today but we love that poem but you know we talk about alliterative verse where each line has like a has a a set number of alliterations so like alliteration for people who aren't aware is when multiple words one after the other or in quick succession and start with the same sound there's that posier song would that i is like i don't, I don't
0: know Hosier lyrics
1: <laughs> what is the fucking line i'm thinking of it's like fretted fire but that was long ago like the fretted fire part that's what alliteration is because that's also very present in uh, yeah. the, the more formulaic poems we were talking about, like The Raven and like Shakespeare yeah. and, and I also wanna
0: get to I wanna I also wanna get to the, the second coming by William Butler Oh yeah
1: I totally forgot we had that.
0: Yeah, so I in the first stanza we have a couple of lines near the end. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. hmm So I was thinking about the S sounds of ceremony and innocence. Yeah. And then the next line, the best, lack all conviction. So I don't know if this is exactly alliteration, but the lack and the conviction, those similar sounds bring both of those lines together. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget if you call that alliteration or assonance.
1: Assonance is it's the repetition of sounds produced by vowels within a sentence. Or okay, a well I'm
0: talking about the repetition of sounds produced by consonants. There's probably a which term for which that is actually too.
1: just called consonants, like consonants within like an oh. any like a an n c e instead of n t s, like not a plural.
0: You're right. I did learn that at one point. Completely forgot exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, no,
1: no, you got that's, it. You that's know, what I'm
0: referring to when I'm looking at Ceremony of Innocence and the best lack
1: all conviction. Mm-hmm. There's another line in this poem. It's the, the, It's the second line. Immediately. It's the falcon cannot hear the falconer. That's such a fucking cool line. Like, what is that line saying? Let's dissect that for a second. The falcon well, cannot okay. hear the falconer. This person has sent this animal far away. So that's, that's away. repetition
0: of whole words. Yeah, it's, a similar, it's a similar principle to what we were saying when we were talking about the love song of of J. Alfred Prufock, mm-hmm. um, and using the same word twice, but that word means something different.
1: So, yeah, so you've got the, the repetition there. You've got the, the alliteration of, like, you know, falcon and falconer. You have both F sounds.
0: It's like that line... Uh, I have known the voices dying with a dying fall from T.S. Eliot. So dying twice, but with a different meaning. And the other one that you pointed out, to prepare a a face to meet the faces that you meet. It's the same idea, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Mm -hmm. So your brain is drawn to those two words because they're the same. Yeah. But then it's interesting and almost unexpected to right. hear two words so close together in such
1: close proximity it's yeah. like
0: two words that are the same word sonically basically yeah with a different meaning and that contrast between sameness and difference i think is what draws out the difference if that makes sense
1: right yeah no i know what you mean the reason that oh, like i i mark out at this line so much the falcon cannot hear the falconer it's just saying something outright it's there's no subtext well there's a lot of sub like a very but it's very, distinct, plain, it's very plain it's very plain, plain language yeah it's very plain it's not but what highbrow
0: it's... so the so like the raven is uses extremely highbrow language yeah and turns of speech that words like quoth, um, yeah the raven words like tis mm-hmm. and that's a stylistic choice
1: Mm -hmm. that's also just a product of 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 edgar Allan poe's time too
0: i mean yeah but i think that even for this general speaking language of the time he's using elevated
1: language oh yeah no for sure but like just sort of like a product of his time like as like as like a a literary figure
0: yeah it is it is a modern trend to use extremely plain language
1: Mm -hmm. Um, uh,
0: like this but yates isn't that like how when was this written In,
1: in the 80s but, but like, that's
0: still, that's modern in the grand scheme of things. Yeah,
1: no, yeah, for sure. But like what I've been getting at is like the Falcon cannot hear the Falconers. Like there's this idea here that this entity has been sent forth from this person that's, you know, there's a, there's a connection, there's like a fil- familiarity between these two entities. And you know, one of them has been sent forth and he's he's sort of flown and glided for so long that the Falcon has lost its way and it can't get back home. It can't get back to its Falconer, to this person that it's connected with. This is what I mean when I say poetry is incantatory and and sorcerous. It just conveys this deep tragedy in just a really raw, simple line. It's fucking stellar.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Audre Lorde does a similar thing in a litany for survival at the beginning of the second stanza. For those of us who are imprinted with fear, like a faint line in the center of our foreheads. That's just another really short not very many words but communication of 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 so much mm-hmm. and it's it's very visual and again plain language
1: mm-hmm. it's in conversation with a much deeper narrative of like you know this is very much a poem about about racial anxieties about the fears that black people face or that the fears that minorities face in the modern world like that line you mentioned for those of us who are in imprinted with fear like a faint line in the center of our foreheads like that's what it yeah. calls to it's like a laser sight right and it, and yeah and it implies so,
0: that it's fear that that can't be fully expressed it's um, yeah with that faint line in the center of our foreheads yes so that's something that's barely noticeable but it's still fear that has been imprinted you know and imprinted implies that it's been there mm-hmm. that it's that it's there it's, for an entire lifetime it's,
1: it's a fear that they have no choice but to feel
0: yeah and it's inseparable from their identity. Yeah,
1: exactly. It sort of calls to mind this image of like a laser sight from a sniper rifle. Draw back. What does that then convey? That's a very militaristic application or apparatus, if you will. Through that one line alone, that a faint line in the center of our foreheads, through the culmination of talking about this faint, sort of difficult to perceive line, where it's located, and talking about being imprinted with fear. That's like like you said, inseparable from our from our identity. You then have this poem that's talking about tension between minorities and uh, state institutions, like the police and the military. Mm-hmm. And, and there's just, there's all of that packed into this, these three lines at the beginning of a standard. It's, it's mental, dude. It, it's like <laughs> I never, I can never get over it.
0: That's what we mean when we say saying a lot with a little. Yes. And this is a skill that is really easily brought over to writing prose i think decide emphasis is a little bit trickier to bring over i'm deciding how to create a rhythm in prose is like i think a little bit more of a challenge to get a sense of yeah but the idea of the economy of language and making every word or on a bigger scale every scene Mm -hmm. meaningful and additive yeah. Is something that is a really valuable lesson you can draw from poetry.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And another thing, Jake has obviously, you know, already, has already drunk the Kool-Aid. I'm
1: already there. I already have, <laughs> I already have the brain itch. It,
0: it can be, it can be a little bit of an acquired taste, but I would just, there's a lot of poetry out there and yeah. people will tell you what to read. English teachers will tell you what to read. A lot of old white dudes, but If you want to get into poetry you should follow what interests you Mm -hmm. what genuinely interests you and what genuinely speaks to you yeah because trying to become interested in something that doesn't speak to you will Mm -hmm. make reading poetry a very painful process yeah and i think that that might be what turns people off of it when you're assigned to read things
1: that's that's a great point in talking about poetry in like literary studies being sort of you know you get talked at about like you need to read these dudes by like old white dudes there's this uh the sense that poetry is very you know haughty and proper and patrician and all this bullshit the first poet that i got really into is a poet by the name of david james brock and he has it's his second book of poetry but the first of his that i read is is titled ten-headed alien this is a poetry book about prog rock aliens robots and like cowboys in space And it's really deeply complex and moving and tragic. But it's like it's about fucking prog rock and robots and cowboys and lasers. Like those are common like images and themes and stuff like that. Yeah, and Um, these are
0: things and these are things that excite you and that you're interested
1: in. There's just there there's like an informality of the language, but it's still really beautifully written. There's a lot of poetry out there that is just not at all sort of like what the conception of what poetry is. Like you said, find something that speaks to you. For me, it was poetry about fucking prog music. It's it's <laughs> awesome.
0: But yeah. So I think the the poetry that spoke to me first was probably Shakespeare. Not to be that person, but
1: uh, <laughs> no, be that person. I, fuck it. But I but I love Shakespeare. Great.
0: Yeah. But I love Shakespeare. I liked acting out mm-hmm. Shakespeare. I love the fact that they were plays and stories, but written in poetry. I had a lot of fun in high school doing a lot of memorization of shakespeare Mm -hmm. i had a lot of fun writing sonnets i like writing poems with structure so when i write poems which is almost never i liked that format of the sonnet because it Mm -hmm. basically tells you to me it was like well it's just telling me how to write it i was lady Macbeth in a scene that i acted had to act out for group project
1: oh did you Um, get the out damn spot scene
0: no it was the it was it was a scene where basically she's convincing Macbeth to kill the king right it's earlier much earlier than the place you're
1: talking about gotcha
0: I played Hermia in a 7th grade production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Nice. I read a lot of Shakespeare. I've seen Shakespeare performed in like professional theaters and mm-hmm. I think that's That's always an amazing experience. Highly recommend seeing Shakespeare done. Yeah. Because when you since can see it acted out, you almost don't need to understand what they're saying. Right. But all, but that's also like part of the fun challenge for me is learning the language of Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and it's it's really funny. It can be really funny when you start to put things together once you realize that all of Romeo and Juliet, every other line is a sex joke.
1: Oh, absolutely! Makes it, that it that, so that much play better. is filthy. I know it's it is it, salacious it, it, as it's it's
0: disguised. It's disguised in like Shakespearean language, but there's just every other. There's just yeah. so much constant constant innuendo.
1: Oh, for sure that
0: you don't recognize anymore because it's so dated. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, But once you start to recognize it, like you just can't, you can't go one scene without shaking your head and like trying not to laugh.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I've also, also because you brought up the Raven, I also acted in college in a dramatic reading of the Raven. Oh, cool. Playing, get this. This is an indication of my acting ability, playing one fourth of the
1: Raven. Nice. (laughs) So (laughs) wait, did they have multiple people saying never more?
0: Yes, because the conceit was like they had one actor so there was the main guy was like one actor playing the main character of the raven who sat in like a chair basically reading most of the lines doing the legwork and doing the legwork yeah and uh, then there were four people who played the raven and we like slowly populated the stage saying the nevermore lines until we had all like surrounded him and we're circling him can you give us a taste
1: can you give it like what's your
0: dude this was like six years ago we just said nevermore
1: no like like what was the line delivery like
0: oh oh i know prophet said i thing of evil prophet still a bird or devil and then later in that stanza is there a balm in gilead so when he said that he was like screaming at us mm. and we were just circling him and circling him and, and saying nevermore
1: nevermore <laughs> oh she could sell it she could sell it yeah <laughs> she's got it it's got the acting chops
0: i i don't i don't <laughs> no, you there's, super a reason, dude. there's a reason there's a reason broadway nope you, I, you, know, you know what my specialty was in college theater? What's that? Stage management.
1: That, yeah, it's, that's an integral part, man.
0: Yeah, I'm much better at telling people what to do than acting.
1: That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> no, don't worry about Jake it. Jake roast me on <laughs> main? <laughs> Sorry. Ow. Sorry. We're getting a little this is a long this, episode this we're is writing... gonna
0: be a long episode but i think i think and you'll probably agree with me i think it's worth it
1: i think it's worth it
0: you have to get through this episode because because your patience will be rewarded in the next episode when we finally talk about fan fiction
1: absolutely we're gonna five episodes <laughs> it, into a podcast writing supposedly, and fan supposedly, supposedly we haven't talked fan about it for five episodes. <laughs> five episodes to be fair and fan fiction is in parentheses but yeah um, so
0: next episode episode five and six and seven are all going to be Great. about fan fiction and eight and nine. Yes. Well, nine, a little less. So
1: before we wrap up, I do want to recap our final point for the episode, which was about, you know, how writing poetry can help you write prose. A uh, general recap is we talked about the economy of language saying a lot with a little, like I said, that doesn't mean all of your writing has to be really like laconic and you, your work has to be short, but it means like, you know, what you should be thinking of is,
0: Ever read, ever read Strunk and White?
1: I recognize that name. I think I know what you're about to say, but I don't think I've read it.
0: The Elements of Style. Here yes. It is. Yeah. So by William Strunk and E.B. White. So I haven't read this in a very long time, but it's a very famous handbook on writing. And in the foreword, I believe it is E.B. White quotes William Strunk as saying over and over again, omit needless words, omit needless words. Yeah. Yeah and i think that kind of sums up the point we're trying to get at
1: yeah omit needless words learning to write poetry is how you learn to show and not tell it's a great tool for that Mm. it's why i said at the beginning of the episode i think a great exercise would be to try to write a poem where you don't use simile at all where you're not making comparisons you're strictly the images are all that you're saying I'm gonna disagree with you but Not to publish like just as an exercise No one but you has to see the poem But you can just take a shot at it Because right. metaphors are just They're images alone They're images in a vacuum almost right So I think that's sort of a, a really good way to like you know, How can I write a decent poem by strictly doing this And don't be afraid to get out there Think really weird with your images Like we said before poetry doesn't have yeah. to be anything
0: Yeah, and you can use poetry because it's so short, I think, to practice discrete elements like drawing out images or finding a rhythm or, you know, word choice or alliteration or assonance. You can use little short works of poetry to Mm -hmm. exercise your skills in each of those areas.
1: So in conclusion, poetry is the language we use to talk about things that we don't have the words to talk about. I'll say it again. It's very incantatory. Poetry is sorcery. It telepathically communicates. Them. I think I think people should have
0: been taking drinks every time you say poetry. Is I, every time
1: I there's gonna be like a word count of how many times I've used the word compelling over these Somebody, last few episodes.
0: When you leave your reviews in Apple Podcasts, tell us how many times Jake said the word sorcery. Because it's just it's just like
1: it's the perfect word for it. You know what I mean? It's just ah, it's okay, I'm not gonna belabor the point anymore. You know how much I fucking love it.
0: All right, um, we've probably said everything we set out to say yeah. six or seven times. Six now. or seven times, yeah. So maybe we should try. We should wrap up this discussion. Thank you for your patience listening to us talk about this for a long time. I'll just remind everyone of our Gmail and Instagram accounts. Roast us at owffpod at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram at O-W-F-F underscore podcast. That's where you can also get our list of all the poems we talked about today. Provided by our lovely social media manager, Kira
1: thanks Kara. Thank you,
0: Kira thank you all so much for listening this podcast is produced and edited I would say us but it's really edited by. it's edited
1: me. by Zoe Zoe does it
0: Jake does the writing of the descriptions
1: yeah and I like host the recordings and stuff but that's really not much.
0: yeah great. and please rate review and subscribe wherever you listen
1: look forward to seeing you back next episode I'm gonna see us off with a poetry reading. So this is actually one poem that wasn't available online, but it's it's one of my favorite poems of all time. And it's titled Who's Your Daddy by Peter Redgrove. So here it is. And there's a parenthetical at the top of the poem here that, that answers that the the titular question. It says Answer, HMS Ark Royal. Wartime joke. I see a great battleship moored in the snow. I see the silvery pencils of guns that bristle. I remake this image. I try to. It is a pine cone of lunar metal. Doors hinge in its steel, flakes fly, warm glows emerge. I see pollen. I see a pine cone consecrated to Athens. I see an arc. I know there are scrolls containing royal mysteries inside, called explosives, causing mysterious deaths understood by computer. It is a battleship. This will not be countermanded. It is a great battleship moored in the snow. It is not a white spider flying in its cracked web of the lake. It is not the discarded surplus of the summer god, still warm inside. It is a battleship containing sailors, trained to navigate and kill. It is no wedding gown or wedding blouse with golden buttons, from which light shines across snowy sheets. It is no iced honey cake of the sacrament of marriage, in which the honey is sweet light, that will last a couple of years of married breakfasts. It is a battleship, commanded. Metal, commanded, by a man with steel-ringed eyes, by a man with golden-wetted cuffs, under orders. It is no felled yule log, stuffed with presents, the honey-log of a sedated bear. It awaits orders understood by computer. It is the sledge made of dead men's nails, the glittering horse of scythes, the refrigerator of snowy carcasses.